Hey, what's good, Rocky Peak? How we doing, 9 o'clock service? Hey, good morning. It is good to be with you once again. If you're joining us for the very first time, whether you're here in the worship center, whether you're joining us on the ridge, special welcome to you. Welcome to Rocky Peak. We are excited that you're here spending the service time with us. My name is Dre. I'm one of the pastors here at Rocky Peak, and I'm going to lead us in our time of teaching. But before I do, I also want to acknowledge Happy Father's Day to everybody out there. And so not only do I want to say, do I want to send well wishes to our fathers and grandfathers out there, but there are many people that play the role of father figures in our life. So as well, happy Father's Day to our stepfathers, to our foster fathers, to our foster figures, like the uncles or the older brothers, the coaches, the life group leaders, the mentors, all of you, whether you realize it or not, that have played the role of a father figure, happy Father's Day today. And at the same time, I want to acknowledge that for some of us, when it comes to Father's Day, the emotions we feel might be complicated as well as even painful. And to you, I want to wish you a happy Father's Day because regardless of your earthly father situation, you have a heavenly father that loves you, that is perfect, and has entered into your suffering to let you know that you are no longer an orphan. So to you as well, happy Father's Day as we go. So inside your program, there is a green and white message note sheet, which is a great tool to help you follow along with this time of teaching. Also a great tool to be able to jot down. There's some white space there to write down anything the Holy Spirit is specifically prompting you to remember. I'm going to pray. We're going to jump right in. Father God, as we start things off this morning, I just want to pause and thank you for being our perfect Father. I want to thank you for not giving up on us. I want to thank you for giving your son Jesus to us as a sign of how ultimately and deeply loved we are by you. And so, Father, as we open up your word this morning, which is living and active, which is what transforms our lives, as we read more about your son and his character, as by learning the character of Jesus, we learn more about your character, Father. We thank you for who you are. We pray that we leave this place with an expanded view of not just who God the Father is, but of who God the Father desires to transform me and us into being. As I often pray as we open up your word this morning, I pray that I as the communicator become much, much less. It's not about me this morning. I pray that you, Father, and your Son, Jesus, become much, much more. And so we know you are already speaking as your church. We are committed to listening to what you have to say. And it is in the name of your son that we commit this time. And everybody said, amen. Well, this morning, we're going to go ahead and continue the series we've been in for the last several weeks. I think we've been in the series for about eight or nine weeks now called Metamorphosis Face-to-Face. Now, this series is based on a letter in our New Testament, the second half of our Bible. The letter is called 2 Corinthians, and it's a letter written by a man we call the Apostle Paul, who was a key leader in the early movement of Jesus, and he is addressing this letter to Christ followers that he himself had led to 
to the Lord about five years earlier in and around the major ancient city of Corinth. And so what's happening in this letter, the heart of this series, is that as Paul talks about God's vision for all people, not just the Corinthians, but for us as well, the word he often comes back to is a Greek word called metamorpho, which is where we get our English word metamorphosis. Now a metamorphosis is a slow, a gradual, but a profound change. And the reason why Paul uses that word is it's a beautiful picture of what it means to be a Christ follower. That as we enter into this relationship with Jesus, we enter into this gradual yet profound journey of transformation. We enter into a face-to-face relationship with Jesus in which we learn to listen and follow to his leading in our lives. And through that and the work of the Holy Spirit, we are transformed to think and act as a person now reflecting the risen Jesus. And so today, we're going to be starting a brand new chapter. We're going to be starting chapter four in this letter. But what's funny about this is we're starting a new chapter, but it acts as an epilogue or a continuation as to the last, as to the last couple weeks of where we've been. In fact, the very first word in our verse today is therefore, which is tying it into, in particular, the last two weeks as Michael's taught about covenant and what it means that we are now part of this new covenant. And last week, before we jump into our passage today, Michael had asked a key question. If you remember that Michael had asked, what does it mean to be a Christ follower? If you were to explain that to someone, explain this is what it means to be a Christian, this is what it means to be a Christ follower, how would you answer that question? And the reality that Michael touched on is many of us sometimes say true things, but we miss out on the whole story. We sometimes say things such as at some point we, quote, gave our lives to Jesus. At some point we will, quote, go to heaven. Maybe we go to church. We try to be a better person. But what Paul had shown us in the scriptures the last couple weeks is to be a Christ follower means that we are regularly being transformed to reflect the risen Jesus. And that's key heading into our passage today because another thing Michael mentioned last week is that no matter where you are in 2 Corinthians, the backdrop is always Paul's complicated and messy relationship with the church at Corinth. And if you've been with us, you know that there have been some false teachers, there have been some false leaders that have been turning the church against the Apostle Paul, that have been challenging his authority, challenging his spiritual leadership, challenging his view as apostle, as an apostle. And what we've seen so far is that as Paul goes, quote, on the defensive, he does less to defend himself and he does more to paint a picture of who Jesus really is. The root issue that Paul has identified is that they are following the wrong Jesus. I talked about that several weeks ago, that the reason they can't recognize the work of Jesus in Paul's life is because they have created a false Jesus. And so once again, Paul is going to continue to show the church of Corinth, this is who Jesus really is, and this is who he desires us to become. And he's going to focus in this morning on a key characteristic of God in that. And so there in your note sheet, you've got a section titled, no longer blind, 
And if you've got your Bibles, open them up. If you've got your apps, turn them on. We're going to be going to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Second Corinthians chapter 4, we're going to start right at verse 1, and as I often say as we go into our scripture, if you've got a pen handy, get that ready. If you've got the highlight function handy in your apps, get it ready, because we're going to mark this passage up. Verse 1, therefore, since through God's mercy, I need you to double underline the word mercy. This is the key word in our passage today. Put a box around it, arrows, flames, happy faces. I know if you have an app, you're limited with what you can do. Figure something out. Triple highlight it as you go in. Therefore, since through God's mercy, we have this ministry, we do not lose hope heart. Would you underline those last two words? Lose heart. And so as Paul sums up what it means that we live in the new covenant, again, the passages Michael covered over the last two weeks, he once again points to God's character. And in this case, he's making the point, God is mercy. God is is mercy. And here, clearly, the words I'm using, Paul is not saying God shows mercy. He is saying God is mercy. It is an essential part of who God is. Now, we need to focus in on this point a little bit because we need to remove some cultural filters to really understand what it means that God is merciful. And so, if we take a moment and if we leave Jesus to the side, if we look at our own culture, how would you say our culture defines mercy? We would probably say different things like, well, mercy is having pity on someone. Mercy is showing forgiveness. Mercy may be at times showing some form of compassion. And those are all very good things, right? But again, as we continue this question, okay, if that's acts of mercy, then as a culture, the next question is, why do we show mercy? When is mercy deserved by a cultural standard? And that, if I'm honest with myself, is when my sin kicks in. Because I would say that as a prideful human being, I would say that as a only the strongest survive, only the strongest survive culture, we would often say that yes, you show mercy when you are in a position of power. And what I mean by that is often as a culture, we've adopted this view of mercy that we show pity, we give forgiveness, we even show compassion. When, it, when our conditions for it have been met. That's what it means to be in a position of power, that once our conditions are met, then I will show you mercy. It's very transactional. And often we would say our conditions are different, but the reality is often our condition is the same thing. I will show you mercy when you acknowledge that I am right and you are wrong. And so when we deal with a cultural mercy, we, excuse me, or a conditional mercy, what we don't realize is we often bring that into our Christian lives as well. 
I will show people that attack me for being a Christ follower, that attack the church, that attack Jesus, mercy when they have repented of it, when they have renounced that, when they have met my criteria. And so what we need to do, as Paul highlights that God is a mercy, we need to understand that the mercy that God shows us through Jesus is radically different than the mercy that our culture shows because it is not conditional. So the root, the Greek root that Paul uses when he talks about mercy can be defined as compassion. But this isn't just any compassion. This mirrors the love that God has for us. As we look throughout the entire Bible, the love that God has for his fallen creation is a love that is unconditional. What it means that God is compassionate for us is that he wants what is absolutely best for us. Now that does not necessarily mean material success, but what is absolutely best is us encountering the living Jesus and being transformed because of it. But what's beautiful about how different God's mercy is, is that he shows that compassion. He wants us to encounter Jesus regardless of if we have earned it or if we have first repented for it. And this definition of mercy comes from the life of Jesus. If we look at the life of Jesus, he came and lived the life that we couldn't live, a perfect life. He served us. He served an undeserving people. He served as he lived throughout his life on earth. He died the death that he didn't deserve, but we did. And because of that mercy, because of what he has shown us, we can now experience forgiveness and transformation. The mercy of God made the first move. And because of it, our filters can be shattered and we can experience the real Jesus. And as we emotionally connect Paul to this, this is very personal to him because Paul is very much aware of who he used to be. Paul used to be a persecutor of the church. I've used this word before and I don't use it lightly. The early church, many of them would have viewed Paul as a terrorist because Paul hunted them down. There was blood on Paul's hands as families were ripped apart, as friends were led to death because they professed the name of Jesus. Paul did many monstrous things, and in fact, he did them in the name of God. He thought he was being religious and zealous when he did these things. It was on his way to a city called Damascus to continue to do these monstrous things that he encountered the mercy of Jesus while he was still a hated enemy of Jesus, once again, mercy made the first move. Amen. And so when he says that God is mercy, it is that God loves and shows his compassion before it is deserved. And when we experience that, it shatters our filters of who Jesus really is. And in verse 1, I had you underline that because of God's mercy, he and his partners do not lose heart. We've been talking throughout this whole series that Paul has not led a glamorous life, has he? Paul has experienced heavy persecution, 
hardship, financial hardship, emotional hardship. Before, at the beginning of chapter one, he talks about having moments in which he despairs emotionally. And that's in general, in his whole ministry. But as we look specifically in his relationship with the church of Corinth, they are slandering him. They are lying about him. They are assassinating his character. In fact, Paul has suffered so much because of the church of Corinth, we wouldn't blame him for quitting on them, right? We wouldn't blame him for going, you know what? It's your funeral. I told you what you needed to do. You do with it. Enjoy burning, guys, and walking away. We might even clap and go, yeah, they're getting what they deserve. And Paul is honest that he probably has thought about it, and it's probably seemed like a great option. But what empowers him to continue is the mercy of God, in that Paul is very aware that God's mercy didn't quit on him. And as he regularly experiences that, that empowers him to not quit on Corinth or any of the other churches. And then he continues to write in verse two, rather we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Would you underline this? And so mercy does not mean that we excuse sin. Mercy does not mean that we don't speak out against sin. But what we see is Paul is speaking out against the false teachers, but he's still doing it both truthfully and respectfully. And what he is renouncing is that these false teachers are more concerned with their own fame than the fame of Jesus. This is a trap that can happen in any type of leadership, but we see it happen a lot even today in religious leadership, that what you end up creating is a cult of personality rather than people following the risen Jesus. And so Paul is pointing out, we have renounced that, and he also tells us one way to tell if someone is an honest follower leader of God or not is how they handle God's word. Do they distort God's word? Do they de-emphasize God's word? Remember Michael talked several weeks ago about the importance of reading God's word in its context, historically, situationally. He paints, paints out that if God's word is important to them and they are faithful to it, they're gonna be faithful. But if their words in their own mind carry more weight, then we have a problem. And again, as Paul talks about himself, he talks about that his conscience is clear in the sight of God. Christian parents, have you ever tried to scare your kids straight by saying God is watching? <laughs> by saying Jesus is watching? So in the non-harmful way of this, Paul is saying this, Jesus is watching my life. Jesus is over my life, and I am confident in knowing who he is, and I am confident in knowing in who he is transforming me to be. So compared to these false teachers, my conscience is clear. And then he continues, verse four, the God of this age has blinded, would you underline that word? Blinded the mind of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that display, oh, excuse me, I missed a verse. Verse three, 
And even if our gospel is veiled, would you underline that? And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled for those who are perishing. Verse four, the God of this age has blinded, again, underline that, the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ who is the image of God. And so, this idea of our sight being veiled and obstructed keeps us from seeing the gospel. What that means is when our spiritual sight is obstructed or we are blind, then what we do not see is the real Jesus. We see a filtered Jesus, a false Jesus, and he talks about spiritual warfare, that the God of this age has blinded unbelievers. And let's unpack that a little bit more, that often in church settings when we hear the word unbeliever, we kind of immediately think of an us versus them mentality, that those of us sitting in the church are believers, those of us outside the church are unbelievers. And while there is truth to that, what Paul is also referencing is to be an unbeliever has nothing to do with where you're sitting when it comes to regarding the church. To be an unbeliever means has everything to do with how you see Jesus. And so there are many that are sitting in our churches that feel as if they are professing following Jesus that are unbelievers because they are following the wrong Jesus. And that is the tactic of the God of our age, Satan, the devil. And with that, let's talk a little bit about spiritual warfare. And let me ask you an interesting rhetorical question. When you picture Satan attacking you, how do you picture it happening? Now, I know that's not a cheery thought to be thinking about, but we got to talk about this honest truth. When you picture Satan attacking you, how do you picture this happening? You know, for a long time in my Christian life, I pictured it happening like it's depicted on TV and movies. And so what I mean by that is I pictured when Satan, because in TV and movies, when the devil attacks someone or tries to tempt someone, it's obvious that it's the devil. It's obvious that he's evil. And so often in TV and movies, he clearly looks like the devil, right? Horns, pitchfork, goat face, smells like brimstone. And usually what he's asking you is pretty overtly evil. I want your soul. Deal with me with your soul. And so because that was in my mind, I always pictured, hey, if the devil attacks me, it's going to be completely obvious. I'm going to be able to see it so that I can counter or run away from it. But the truth of spiritual warfare is that that's not how the devil attacks at all. There are many things that the devil is not. The devil is not nearly as powerful as Jesus. The devil has not won anything. The devil is not limitless in his power. But there is one thing that the devil is and that is a brilliant strategist. He is a brilliant strategist. 
that rather than overtly coming from the front going, I want you to disbelieve Jesus, what he attacks is he begins to filter our view of the real Jesus to distort the image in small ways at first, and then he continues to build on those filters until without realizing it, we are following the wrong Jesus and find ourselves far away from the real risen Jesus. And often what he does is he, we see this in the culture of Corinth and we see this in our culture today, that the filters he implies, Jesus, the risen Jesus, is radically different from our culture. He was radically different from the Corinthian culture. And one of the filters that the devil often uses then and now is to get Jesus to fit and make sense within the already established culture. The culture at large in Corinth was all about acquiring power so that people knew you were a winner and they, would no, they were not. That's why they didn't recognize Jesus and Paul. He wasn't a winner by their standards. He suffered. He was a servant. He didn't have much at times. That wasn't just the culture socially for Corinth. That was also their religious culture. When you study the following and the worship of Greek and Roman gods, they worshiped a multitude of gods, but many people had what you would call a primary god. There were certain cities and areas devoted to a specific primary god with temples there. And why they would choose a primary is in essence, if all the gods fought, this is who I think is the strongest. This is who I think would survive. This is who I think is the winner. And so when you think about that culture, and again, very similar to our culture today, isn't it? Jesus is a radical departure from that, isn't he? Because Jesus is the Almighty, and yet what did he choose to do with that power? He surrendered his power for the good of those that are weaker than him. He served those that are weaker than him. And so what does the enemy do? Again, not a flat-out disbelief, but it's a subtle distortion that, hey, this Jesus, this humble servant, this washing your feet and caring about your enemies, that doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? And I think it's because Paul's wrong. That's not Jesus. Man, the real Jesus He's a fighter. He's a take no prisoners guy. He's a winner. He calls it like he sees it and wags that finger. And so do you see how that starts to make sense and lead you away? That's how the enemy attacks. And the reason why the enemy often employs that tactic is that he knows the truth that the most important thing about any of us is what we think about and how we see Jesus. There in your note sheet, I put a quote from uh, just a legendary pastor and author named A.W. Tozer, and he talks about this truth. He says that what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us, that our idea of God corresponds as nearly as possible to the true being of God is of immense importance to us. Compared with our actual thoughts about him, our creedal statement, often what we say with our mouth, our creedal statements are of little consequence. 
Our real idea of God may lie buried under the rubbish of conventional religious notions and may require an intelligence and vigorous search before it is finally unearthed and exposed for what it is. Only after an ordeal of painful self-probing are we likely to discover what we actually believe about God. The heaviest obligation lying upon the Christian church today is to purify and elevate her concept of God until it is once more worthy of him. And knowing that this is how the enemy attacks, this is what we see Paul defending Jesus, not himself. And his defense is not to argue or batter them into submission, but to show them who Jesus really is and for that to lead to transformation. Now, as we talk about spiritual warfare, let's take a spiritual deep breath. And again, let's understand the truth about Satan. Paul calls him the God of this age because an age has a beginning and an end. There is a limitation. The cross is done, the tomb is empty, the enemy has been defeated. And that is the power of Jesus. But we still need to exercise caution. Because just as if you've ever had to deal with a rattlesnake, and if you've been around Rocky Peak for any length of time, you probably have. You kill a rattlesnake by cutting off its head. And even though it squirms and it's moved, that thing is dead. But you still need to be very careful with the severed head because it still has venom and can still hurt in it. So that's why Paul warns us of the tactics of the enemy. And so he continues in verse five, for what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. So again, Paul is not saying, hey, you should believe me and my authority because I'm awesome. Paul again is going, no, 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 I don't care what you think of me, I care how you see Jesus. So for what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants, would you underline that, as your servants for Jesus' sake. If this relationship between Paul and the Church of Corinth were happening today, can you imagine how nasty that social media war would become? Can you imagine the things that would be said about Paul or Corinth on Facebook or Instagram or the YouTube videos that are popping up of people taking a side? And so again, as we've established, this was not an easy relationship. But once again, Paul is empowered by the mercy of Jesus to reach them by being their servant. Even though he is a leader, even though he does have a spiritual authority, the model of Jesus is the spiritual leader that washed the feet of his enemies and those that are weaker than him. And so even even though Paul has wanted to quit, he is empowered by Jesus to continue to reach them for Jesus by serving them. Christ followers, and I am guilty of this, too often we think that we are going to win somebody to the side of Jesus by beating them into it. 
Too often we think we are going to reach someone to the side of Jesus by guilting or shaming them into it. Too often we think we are going to reach someone for Jesus by yelling louder or angrier or being more hateful, even by using sin as long as they reach Jesus, the ends justify the means. Too often we employ these other tactics, but Paul's model is the model of Jesus. How do we show people the real Jesus? By serving them the way he served us. Mercy. Paul sacrificed financial support from Corinth. He suffered financially so they wouldn't question his motives. He sacrificed comfortability. He sacrificed emotions, time. He's committed to serving them. Hear this clearly, even though they're wrong and in sin. But again, it's the mercy of Jesus that empowers him. This is how Jesus loves and serves. This is how I am empowered to love and serve. And then finally, in verse 6, for God who said, let light shine out of the darkness. Again, he's talking about Genesis. He's talking about God the creator who made light where there was none. Let light shine out of the darkness, made his light shine in our hearts. Would you underline that phrase? Shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Jesus, face of Christ. The light of God is how we see the true Jesus. Biblically, we've talked about this often, that heart does not simply mean emotions, but in a biblical view, the heart is the control center of our whole being. The heart is why we are the way we are. We think the way we think. We act the way we act. And so what Paul is invoking is the God of creation who made light shine in the dark. That is the God who will make light shine in our hearts. And when that happens, that is when we see the true unfiltered Jesus who is the embodiment of the character of God. And there in your note sheet, before we leave this passage, this was from last week's message, 2 Corinthians 3, and we all who with unveiled faces, meaning God has lifted the veil, contemplate the Lord's glory, that contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image, are experiencing that metamorphosis with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit Amen. And so that's our passage. And so what I want to do in the immediate is mercy is key to, this, to what, God, what Paul is saying in this passage. So I want to spend some brief time just making sure we dig into this a little bit deeper and understand why it's so key that we see that God is merciful and how that applies to God's vision for each and every one of us. So if you're following along in your note sheet, you've got a section titled, A New Understanding of Mercy. And your first fill-in is this. Mercy is key to God's character. Mercy is key to God's character. Now, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on this point. I think the apostle did that well enough for us. But quickly, I just want to highlight that, remember, when it comes to seeing God as mercy, 
Mercy is not a small aspect of God's character. Mercy is not a sometimes act of God. Mercy is not an exhaustible resource. Mercy is who God is, his love, his compassion. That is essential to understanding who God is, is understanding that he is mercy. Again, there in your note sheet, going back to Tozer, he puts it this way. Mercy is an attribute of God, an infinite and inexhaustible energy within the divine nature which disposes God to be actively compassionate. Nothing that has occurred or will occur in heaven or earth or hell can change the tender mercies of our God. Forever his mercy stands a boundless, overwhelming immensity of divine pity and compassion. And again, this is key because if we miss this, then we will not see the unfiltered Jesus. If we miss this, we will not see the unfiltered Jesus. Because if we miss this, the result is being a person that is dominated by anger and hate. And when we become Christians like that, these attributes of God of grace, mercy, and love are incomprehensible to us. In fact, there in your note sheet, the late great Dallas Willard put it in such words, if we are still dominated by anger, contempt, and lusting, the tender areas into which Jesus now moves will be incomprehensible. And so mercy is key to God's character. And intimately, that leads us to the second fill-in. Mercy is key to our transformed character. Mercy is key to our now transformed character. Before we came to Jesus, mercy was likely not a defining characteristic of our lives. But as we are being transformed into the image of Jesus, mercy is a characteristic that shows that the, the life of that the Spirit of God is active in our lives. What does it mean to be a Christ follower? It means to experience regular transformation. A Christ follower is defined by the declaration, Jesus is Lord. And what it means to, to declare Jesus is Lord is that I see Jesus clearly now. The Holy Spirit has removed the veil, has opened my eyes. I see the unfiltered character of Jesus, and I see that that is who he desires me to become. As he is, he is transforming me to be. And so what's powerful about this is as Christ followers, we cannot declare that Jesus is merciful if we do not show that in our lives. We cannot be a people, a church, a global community that says Jesus is merciful if his people are not living out that truth. Mercy becomes a clear mark of the transformation taking place in our lives. There in your note sheet, I put a section from Matthew chapter 7 the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus says, so in everything you do, 
So excuse me, in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Now many of you, whether you've been in church or not, are familiar with that saying that's often called the golden rule. Treat people how you want to be treated. But let's dig into the context. The entire chapter, chapter seven, is talking about growing as people in mercy. The beginning of this chapter is that famous metaphor when Jesus says, before you deal with the splinter in your neighbor's eye, deal with the plank in yours. Now again, hear the context of it. Jesus is not saying we ignore, excuse, or even don't speak out against sin, but he's saying to do that well, you can still take a passionate, strong stance on truth and have mercy when you do it, but it happens when we are transformed internally first. And so as he says that this sums up the law in the prophets, the greatest commandment is to love God and love people. And what that means is to love God is to become like him. And through that, he teaches and empowers us to love people as he loves them, to be a person of mercy. Now, I gotta be honest with you, Rocky Peak. Over the last several weeks, putting together a message on mercy has you feel all kinds of things about yourself. The Lord has been using this time to open my eyes in some uncomfortable ways, to show me some areas of sin and where I'm not merciful that I didn't know existed or I just accepted as being part of the normal rhythms of my life. And as the Lord has shown me this, he's reminded me that for me and us, mercy is not natural. Michael often talks about that even as Christ followers, we still feel a tug back into our sin nature. And this is often a key way in which we feel this tug. Let me ask you a rhetorical question. Have you ever found yourself heated, angry, the view of a friend or a loved one has changed because you had a disagreement over, someone, over something that, has no, that matters nothing? like movies, sports, recipes. We're not even talking about like politics or social issues in there. You're just talking about hobbies and you found yourself heated going, how can this person think and you dwell on it? You're angry in the shower. You're just going, this person is wrong. Yeah, that's a telltale sign that mercy does not come naturally to us. And as I've been putting this together, the Lord had to shine a light into some of the sin in my life. It began as the Lord began showing this to me in how I interact with my own family, my wife, Megan, my kids. The Lord revealed to me how quickly I was to make my mercy and and compassion conditional to them when I was or I perceived to be wrong how quickly all of a sudden my love went, okay, meet my conditions. Okay, you owe me. Okay, make this right. And when the Lord showed that to me, it was like a two by four upside my head because it reminded me, these are the people I love the most. 
And how quickly am I to go into conditional mercy? And the Lord, through his beautiful light, was saying, Dre, remember, you are called to be a person of mercy to them. As the Lord continued this examination in my life, he then began to lead to other relationships, friendships, my church family, extended family, both the ones I love and the ones I hope don't come to Thanksgiving. (laughs) Strangers, my barista, the wonderful checkout people at Target, which is Starbucks and Target where I spend the majority of my time. Again, the Lord showed me how quickly I was to employ conditional mercy when I was or I felt wronged. And the Lord shined his light into my life and said, Trey, I have called you to be a person of mercy in their lives as well. And then the Lord went really deep. And he showed me the people that I would declare are my enemies the people that I would humanly say I have no love for, the people that I would argue against, the people that have hurt me, rightfully so I've felt hurt feelings, the people that have hurt my Jesus, that have hurt my faith. In fact, I'm not going to have us raise our hands, but I'm willing to bet that as human beings, we all have a person or a group of people. Sometimes that is a long list that all we need to do is hear their names or hear the category of person and it makes our blood boil. It clenches our fists. It grinds our teeth in anger. In fact, I think about this day and age living in the United States. We are living in an angry age. We are living in a divided age. We are living in a hateful age. That there are some very important issues going on in our nation that require our voice as Christ followers, that require our grace and our mercy. But the reality is if you turn on the news, you're guaranteed going to see the same social issues talked about. And wherever you are on the spectrum, whatever side you are, all you have to hear is the name of that social issue and Im- or that spiritual issue, and immediately you feel in anger and a hate and you see enemies on the other side. Let's have some fun and name some of them, shall we? For some of us, all we need to do is hear of the issue of gun rights and gun control and we feel our blood boil. For some of us, we need to just hear the word social justice and it makes our blood boil, wherever we are on that. For some of us, we need to just hear the word immigration or refugees, and wherever we are, our blood boils. For some of us, we need to hear the word abortion or LGBTQ community, and it makes our blood boil. For some of us, we just need to hear the word Democrat or the word Republican, and it makes our blood boil. And as the Lord is bringing this up to my life, he said the same thing he had said in the steps earlier. Dre, as a Christ follower, you have been called to be a person of mercy to them as well. Amen. 
hear me clearly. The example of Jesus to be a person of mercy is not to abandon a beautiful biblical ethic. To be a person of mercy is not to abandon truth when God has stated his truth. To be a person of mercy is not to ignore or excuse sin. To be a person of mercy is not to ignore our emotional truth, our anger. To be a person of mercy does not mean that we don't have opinions and strong, passionate opinions in certain areas. But to be a person of mercy means that we are being transformed to love, not with a human love, but a supernatural love that Jesus loved with first and to be transformed into someone who can now do the impossible because of the power of Jesus, which is to show mercy to those that have hurt us the deepest, who are the most fiercely against the way of Jesus and the farthest from him. And why scripture is so key in so many areas is that if you read scripture cover to cover, other than Jesus, the people that God called to lead his movement, to lead his people, to lead his church, were all people that needed to first experience a great mercy. When you look at the people in the Bible, they're traitors, they're racists, they're murderers, They're living sexually impure lifestyles. They're thieves. They're pagans. And yet, because of God's mercy, they were transformed. They repented in a beautiful act of repentance. And they learned to follow the leading of King Jesus. Now, once again, church, let's take a spiritual deep breath. This is not a sprint, this is a marathon. Metamorphosis is a gradual yet profound change. And it is not done on our power. It is done on the supernatural power of Jesus, the Holy Spirit that lives in us, that power that rose Jesus from the dead is the one that lives in you and will empower you to be a person of mercy. But if you remember something Michael said last week, While it doesn't happen on our strength, it does start with us and it takes a willing heart. We have to show a willing heart if we want the Lord to transform us into being a person of mercy. And so with that briefly, there in your note sheet, you've got a section titled Growing in Mercy, Two Areas of Focus. And so what I want to do is that if we have that willing heart Our first two steps are areas in which we want to be intentionally focused because this is what's going to keep our mind on the bigger picture and empower us to be a person of mercy. So the first villain is this. Our first area of focus is that Jesus shows us great mercy. Jesus shows us great mercy. This is where it begins in our growth as a person of mercy 
by being intentionally focused regularly that we are, not past tense, but we are the recipients of a great mercy. That we have not only been shown a great mercy through the death and resurrection of Jesus, but every day in my shortcomings, in my failure, I am still the recipient of a beautifully great, compassionate, and loving mercy. Again, this is what drove Paul When Paul wanted to quit, when he was frustrated, he remained focused on the truth that he is the recipient of a great mercy, and it empowered him to continue to show a grace mercy to a group of people that were his enemies. And so being focused on this truth is where it begins in our transformation that we, each moment of each day, are recipients of a great mercy. Now, practically, how do we focus on this? Well, something we've been saying throughout this whole series, Michael touched on it again last week, this cannot happen without the word of God in our lives. The word of God is living and active. The word of God is the greatest way to have the Holy Spirit remove the filters, remove the sin from our lives. The word of God reveals the true Jesus. The word of God transforms us into the image of Jesus. It refocuses us when we lose mercy Now, throughout this whole series, we've been talking about different ways in which to spend time in the Word. What I want to do practically is just highlight one way briefly that I feel doesn't get enough love in the Christian community, and that's this, memorizing Scripture. (laughs) There were like halfway groans and some (laughs) cheering on that. Memorizing Scripture. And the reason why this is so important and needs more love in our Christian communities is that the word of God is light. The word of God is truth. And when we commit God's word to memory, we now have that life and truth with us wherever we go. Whether I have my phone handy or not, whether my physical Bible is in the car or not, whatever the situation, I have God's truth and life with me. And it's amazing to me how often when I get in those moments that are heated, in those moments that I don't want to show mercy, that the Lord will bring those scriptures to the forefront of my head to refocus me. When you look at your note sheet at Ephesians 2, 4 to 5, because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And by having that memorized in my head, the Lord will continue to use that to focus me, to grow me, to empower me, to remind me daily that I am the recipient of a beautiful mercy. Now, the how to memorize this is going to be beautifully different because we're all wired differently. What I would encourage you to do is start experimenting. And if one form of memorization, whether listening to it, reading it, writing it out, doing it verbally, using these memorization Bible apps that are out there, if one form doesn't work, that's okay. You're not a bad Christian. There are thousands more ways to explore. 
But this is a way that we stay focused on who we are, that we are recipients of mercy, and because of that, we are called to show a great mercy. Now, the second fill-in is this. Jesus empowers us to show a great mercy, to which I say, thank God. I am not left to do this on my own strength. I am not left to do this on my own ability. The purpose of this teaching is not for you to walk out of this building and go, okay, well, Dre said we need to be more merciful and compassionate, so I'm going to try to figure out how to do it. No, no, no. The purpose of opening up God's word at any point is for you to walk out of here with the intention, I need to go before the presence of Jesus about this. Because it is in the presence of Jesus in which he will lead us, in which he will empower us supernaturally, and in which he will transform us to be a person that can show mercy. For some of us, by going into his presence, he's going to start by having us first experience his mercy in a new way, in a fresh way. There are some of us that when we go before the Lord about this, he's going to lead us to beautiful repentance. And he's going to lead us to repent of an area of sin or anger, not because he wants us to live in shame, but because he wants to remove that roadblock so then he can move us forward. There's some of us that are going to go before the Lord about this, and in his presence, he's going to reveal a person or a people group in which he is specifically calling us to be a person of mercy. But regardless of what he chooses to reveal, what happens in the presence of Jesus is that he reminds you, you are not alone. You are not doing this on your own strength. The power that rose Jesus from the grave is the one that lives in you, and it will transform you to be a person of mercy. So my joyful challenge to you, Rocky Peak, is sometime in the next 24 hours, carve out some intentional time, not just to be in the presence of the Lord, whether through prayer, whether through his word, through journaling, by playing some worship music, whether by yourself or with your family or with some other Christ followers, and to go before him and ask him to lead you in the area of mercy specifically. What does he want to remind you of? What does he want to show you? What does he want to call you to? Now, as we close out our time of teaching, I'm going to invite the worship team to come on out. And we're going to be singing a song that's become very familiar to us, almost an anthem throughout this series called The Goodness of God. If you remember, as Michael talked about his injury and being in the hospital bed, this was the song that kept playing over and over in his head. And why we felt led to close with the song is it talks about how the goodness of God ran to us is running over to us each and every day, and that is God's mercy. And so we want to close on this to be able to celebrate not only that we are the recipients of mercy, but that God empowers us to take that mercy and joyfully run it to other people who have yet to experience 
his mercy. And so as we go into this time, as I often say, let this not just be words coming out of our mouth, but let this be the true declaration of our lives, that we have joyfully experienced mercy and we can joyfully be transformed to show the mercy of Jesus to people around us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your beautiful mercy. Thank you that it made the first move. Thank you that it continues to run after us. It continues to pursue us. Thank you that you transform us, not just to experience your mercy, but to be a person who reflects, who shows that beautiful mercy to people around us. And so as we sing this last song, as we receive our tithes, our gifts, and offerings, let this be the declaration of our lives as your temple. Let this be the declaration of our community as Rocky Peak, that we have been beautifully called to be like you, and that you empower us to thrive in that calling. It is your power and your strength, and we joyfully are here to receive it, and to reflect it. Thank you for your mercies. Thank you for your love and your compassion. It is in your name, Jesus, that we all said, amen. Let's stand together, Rocky Peak.